I am Chris Domig, and this is the Viktor Frankl Project. Thanks so much for joining us. For over a decade, I have been intrigued by the life and work of Viktor Frankl, author of Man's Search for Meaning and founder of Logotherapy. Frankl's work has had a profound impact on my own life and for many around the world. I am on a quest to understand why Frankl's life continues to resonate with people, especially during times of adversity and suffering, and how we might all benefit from understanding the principles of Logotherapy, his meaning-centered approach. Whether you've never heard of Viktor Frankl or love his work, whether you've stumbled upon this conversation or sought us out, I want to welcome you. I'm so glad you are here, and I hope these conversations are encouraging to you. Despair is suffering without meaning. They even put that in a formula, said D equals uh, S minus M. Despair is suffering without meaning. So what does that mean? If we do have uh, a reason why we want to live, why we want to uh, invest our interests, our energy, our efforts into a worthwhile cause, that may be a cause, that might be a work that we do, or it might be another person. And then that's love, really. So what am I here for? Who am I here for? Who am I responsible for? What tasks do I want to make my own, so to speak? Uh, those are the essential questions. Those are the existential questions that then, in turn, serve, uh, give you, uh, have also a protective value. Today, I am speaking with Alexander Vesely, director, filmmaker, and licensed psychotherapist. Alexander is also Viktor Frankl's grandson. I've had the great honor of getting to know Alex and his family over the last few years when I have visited Vienna. Well, Alex, it's so good to talk to you again. Yeah, always good talking to you. What I'd like to talk about today are the themes of alienation and reconciliation that I find personally so interesting in your grandfather's life. And there's so much to talk about in terms of what happened to him and how he helped people. And I, I found it hard to boil it down to just a few experiences that, that I wanted to sort of really uh, focus in on, but I managed to do so. And I'm sure that we'll discover uh, a few new experiences along the way that you can recall and that you want to share. So I want to start with the way that your grandfather found meaning in helping others. And of course, his entire life is that essentially, uh, his public life and the way that he helped clients privately. But I wanted to start with something that you and I can both relate to since we both went through the Austrian school system, and that is the stress of the matura. And those who haven't had to do the matura um, or in other countries, it's like the A-level exams or the abitur. I just wanted to explain to our listeners that the matura in, in many uh, European countries, including Austria, well, it's the Latin name for the secondary school exit exam. And it's taken by young adults aged 17 to 20 at the end of their secondary education. In the U.S., it would be high school. And generally, it must be passed in order to apply to a university or higher institution. And it is a very stressful exam. So you have to finish senior year of high school, which is the same year here in Austria and elsewhere. You have to graduate positively, and then you have about five weeks to study, 
And then you show up into a room and there are between four and seven professors and outside uh, professors that come and you have these oral and written exams. And I, for one, can say that when I still have nightmares of tests, it's usually around the Matura. Same here. I don't, I don't think, is that the same for you, yes. Alex? It, and that's, that's kind of very telling um, for those who are listening. You know, Alex, I'm sure you have done many other tests since you studied, and I have too, that were far more difficult. But the stress level that I think our bodies remember of the Matura are, are significant, and they show up in our dreams, which is very telling. And so your grandfather, uh, as a young man, was, was aware that quite a few students around the time of this test, which was always the spring of, of each year, that there was actually a high suicide rate in Austria of, of young people taking their lives in some way related to the stress and preparation or maybe fear of failure in regards to this Matura. And he, he started, he started a, a free... The youth counseling centers. And from what I read, he, he really, in successive years, in the three or four years that he led it, he really got it down to zero in the last year as far as he could tell, of students that, that they stopped taking their lives, at least because of the Matura. Is that correct? Yes, yes. The numbers dropped significantly. And uh, one year there, in the time when there would be this usual spike in suicides, it went down to zero. Um, it was a special, Zeugnisaktion was the name, so it was a special um, action by this youth counseling project to uh, go out and, and enforce their efforts and speak directly, you know, put up posters in front of schools uh, around that time when, when the report cards came out because a lot of kids had fears when they didn't pass uh, some tests or, you know, they would have to repeat uh, a class because they had failed that they wouldn't uh, dare go home and show their parents their their bad report cards. So. Uh, it was a significant uh, success. And actually, the first time that it came to be that the name Viktor Frankl was then published outside um, of, of Austria, that's how big a success um, these, this project was. I love that story because it, it shows his, well, interest and care for young people which is not necessarily the most high-profile thing that you maybe would have wanted to be doing if you wanted to become, you know, a quote-unquote successful therapist. But he saw there was a need. Mm. He felt like he knew how to help. He made it available for free, and it actually helped people. It was a topic that was close to his heart uh, all through his life. And it's like a red thread he was of the opinion that suicide and mental health are not necessarily uh, dependent on each other and that uh, su suicide or the ideas or the wish to commit suicide is not ne necessarily an indicator that you have a mental problem, which is still, still so predominant today, a hundred years later. Uh, he said, you can also choose, okay, uh, on an existential level that 
you are so deprived of anything that it's worth to continue living for that you make the decision to end your life. So the question is, uh, you know, if you have nothing to live for, then why would you keep up with all the uh, hurdles and stresses and um, things that are unpleasant in life uh, and, and keep up with them and live on if there is no reason? Uh, the question becomes not why suicide, but why not? What's keeping me from thinking about suicide? So it's an existential question that goes beyond uh, that level of just the psychological or the emotional, where we uh, can always find some issues if we dig long enough. Now, that's not to say that sometimes uh, there are those cases where suicide is committed out of a mental problem and a depression and all these things that are well studied. Uh, no question. We are never free from those influences and uh and those aspects that are part of our existence but sometimes it's uh not just the absence uh of a mental health of a, of a mental health condition but it's the absence of meaning that's not stopping somebody from going uh, all the way through and committing suicide so not a, a lack of absence an absence of meaning is not the cause or might not be the cause of a suicide, but suicide might well have prevented had there been an aspect of meaning uh, in a person's life and uh, sometimes prevented even if there is a mental health condition such as a depression. Yeah, that's a, such a significant take on, um, on, yeah, on the decision uh to take your life or not, or, or what, what the existential questions actually are when people make that decision. I also yeah. find it so, so relevant for our day and age. I mean, it always is relevant, but you just constantly, I feel like not a day goes by when I don't read an article about, you know, deaths of despair. Uh, that's really what they're called now in popular culture by by folks and journalists that are studying why people are 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 taking their life, and I feel like it implies d despair that they aren't finding enough reasons to live for. And so, exactly as as he as my grandfather said, despair is suffering without meaning. He even put that in a formula: said D equals uh, S minus M. Despair is suffering without meaning. So, what does that mean? If we do have uh, a reason why we want to live, why we want to uh, invest our interests, our energy, our efforts into a worthwhile cause. That may be a cause, that might be a work that we do, or it might be another person. And then that's love, really. So what am I here for? Who am I here for? Who am I responsible for? What tasks do I want to make my own, so to speak? Uh, those are the essential questions. Those are the existential questions that then in turn serve, uh, give you, uh, have also a protective value. A person who knows what uh, they want to do and what they are committed to or who they are committed to are much more uh, resilient, right, to uh, all kinds of factors that are not healthy uh, from mental factors down to physical as well. I mean, we know people who are um, 
fulfilled with uh, meaningful tasks and activities and immersed in them uh, tend to be more resilient, tend to be more happy, and tend to have less physical problems too because it's all connected. If you if you feel uh, you are needed in this world and you are on your way doing meaningful work, you kind of need to be healthy in order to do what you're doing, which in turn makes it more enjoyable. So you, you, you kind of have this feedback loops right and that strengthens uh your body and it strengthens uh your your emotional state uh and if that falls away then you're dealing with this existential vacuum as my grandfather called it and like uh, any kind of vacuum a real vacuum has this uh, quality of sucking right it sucks things in that uh want to take its place because we as human beings don't want to deal with a vacuum we don't want to have nothingness in us in our lives we want something there so sometimes uh, if we don't find any meaningful uh reasons why to live we put in meaningless reasons right just to just to have something there and then it can be any kind of extreme behavior it usually has something to do with either addiction or depression or aggression and if you ask somebody who's uh, engaging in aggressive or depressive or uh, addictive behaviors, you say, why are you doing this? You usually hear, hear one answer, which is, why not? And this is the existential vacuum. Yeah, that's so uh, succinctly put. And it's, it's clear that your grandfather kept engaging people, you know, wherever he was in life. Um, on this level, I, you know, one of my favorite sections in Man's Search for Meaning is when he is asked by one of the friends or colleagues who people respected in the, in the um, particular section of the camp at night, he asked uh, your grandfather to speak and offer some words of, of encouragement. And, and he writes that, you know, he didn't always have the energy or the mental capacity to sort of speak to other people and he wished he could have done it more, but he describes this particular encounter so powerfully. And I think about all the things that were set against these people at that point in time. And yet here he was, you know, Victor Frankl trying to pour courage and, and, and help everyone there in the room in this barrack to discover what they might still live towards or what might still give their life meaning despite their horrendous um, conditions. And, you know, he continued to do so after the war. Uh, I found it so amusing when, when you and I were able to visit your grandmother and how she would talk about Victor, you know, giving a free therapy to clients uh, if they couldn't afford it, or just generally, he said his private practice, it wasn't conditioned on, on people be, uh, you know, being able to pay him. And she would say, why aren't you, you know, charging? And he would say, well, are you, are you missing anything in life? We have enough to eat. And he was such a generous man. And obviously your grandmother is too. She, she sort of explains it as a joke, but it just wasn't common for doctors not to charge and other doctors in Vienna that were talking to starting to talk badly about your grandfather because he was giving free therapy. Um, I find that so touching. 
And in one particular instance, I remember reading that someone called at night. I think he, he speaks about in recollections. A woman calls at night and he would often pick up the phone uh, because it was often people who were suicidal and were really on their last leg, just grasping for something to, to, to keep going. And I don't know how long he spoke to her, maybe a couple hours. And at the end of the conversation, she said to him, you know, Mr. Frankel, I, I don't know what to make of everything you told me, but I do know this, that you picked up the phone at 2 a.m. and rather being angry at me, took the time to patiently listen to me. And that's the reason I feel like I can keep going is because a person um, encountered me with, with such graciousness and love. And I just, again, I find that so incredibly moving. As wise as your grandfather was, it wasn't his wisdom that this particular woman hung on to. She, she just was so taken by the fact that someone would take the time. She said, uh, if, if, if in this world there's such a thing as, you know, I can call up this, uh, this doctor in the middle of the night and this doctor takes his time and tries to help me, maybe the world isn't so hopeless and bad after all. And um, this is a very good example. And he usually brought up this example when he talked about how um, you can never make the method or, you know, whatever school thought you are subscribing to the main factor uh, any kind of therapy is only as good as the person who's applying it and uh, sometimes it's uh, or always actually in therapy you are dealing with two humans having an encounter with each other it's a human to human intervention and he saw that very early on that uh, if you treat people just you know like a like a plumber treats you know uh, some pipes right then this is a different thing the human being is is more than that and uh if you're just out to identify some mechanisms and have this mechanistic i mean you have to think all these ideas of psychoanalysis came from the age of, of the machines you know so this machine model what it was not so absurd to kind of compare the inner workings of the human mind with a machine um, and, and actually there is something to be said about that. A lot of our behavior patterns, you can compare them to machines, but the human being is not all just a machine. You cannot generalize and just say, okay, it's, it's just an apparatus, mm -hmm. uh, and a bunch of mechanisms and, and you just, uh, you know, pull the screw here and, and put some oil there and it's going to run again. It's not that simple. It's usually not that simple. Right. And so, uh, the the fact that you have uh, a human being who is individual, who is unique, um, a um, wise uh, psychologist once said, uh, if you treat two cases of neurosis the same way you've treated one case wrong, at least one, right? Uh, so that's how individual, every situation is in which one person meets another, uh, even in this uh, situation where a doctor is dealing with a patient and so sometimes the human encounter alone is enough to uh, give somebody hope and it's very much linked to the person and then in other occasions it's not in other occasions it's really just the method or the tool 
uh, that's giving something some impulse. The idea alone that's enabling uh, somebody to help themselves, and it's completely removed from the person. So both is possible. Uh, you need to have a good tool, and you need to have a good doctor. Well said. Uh, I know there's so many other experiences we could talk about, uh, but I, I want to move on to a different aspect um, that I'm fascinated by, and that is how your grandfather developed logotherapy. And in particular, I, I want to talk about his ability to both lean on and draw from mentors, um, but also stand up for his own ideas. And so I'd like to talk about, it's fascinating to me that he had limited, but he had, he was in touch with Sigmund Freud. They wrote letters back and forth. Freud published an early uh, essay of, of Frankel's. Um, but, but the person that he was very close to was Alfred Adler. And again, there's so much to say about both these towering figures, but suffice to say, Freud had his, has had his circle and was sort of established as Alfred Adler was starting to develop his ideas. And they were colleagues and they were, you know, in the same circle. And then Alfred Adler sort of broke away and started his own, uh, you know, uh, school of thought, exactly. And your grandfather agreed with so much of what Alfred Adler uh, believed and taught and so he joined Alfred Adler's circle. But then he developed his own ideas on certain aspects. And I guess I, I'd love to hear from you if you could shortly um, talk about what Alfred Adler believed and then explain what it was where your grandfather said, I, I see this part differently. Um uh, yeah, let me, let me start with uh, Freud. So my grandfather was still very young when he was just starting to uh, explore the, this new emerging field of, of psychoanalysis and that there would even be a science that kind of explored the human mind and perception. And that was new. Freud had opened a door, which was uh, just really um, amazing. And, and was very, my grandfather was very drawn to to this new science and uh as a so he was a high school student when he was corresponding with freud freud answered every letter by the way within 72 hours which kind of shows you that he must have been aware that this is an interesting young mind uh who's on the horizon and might one day become uh an interesting um uh, psychoanalyst and uh, first that was his intention to become a psychoanalyst um, but the more he um, learned about psychoanalysis, the more he started to see where he would kind of not agree completely. And it became, uh, it got to a point where he turned away from psychoanalysis because he thought it was too much centered on just the ego. Uh, ultimately, if you study psychoanalysis, you'll, you'll see that Freud saw the main motivation uh, always kind of feeding the ego, the pleasure principle, then the uh, reality principle, but, but that's really just a part of the pleasure principle. So the, this main assumption that all that matters in our lives is uh, seeking pleasure and avoiding what's not pleasurable, right, in essence. 
And uh, so that my grandfather early on had a feeling that this is kind of too limited for us human beings, that there must be more uh, to the to the equation. And uh, Adler did too. Adler had been a student uh, of Freud, and he had then started his own school, which is called Individual Psychology. And in that, he brought in this idea of, well, maybe the human being is not just ego, but is part of a, a bigger uh, community and that engaging with the community and reaching out to others is also an essential part of the, the human motivation to life. And he liked that. And so he was uh, already starting to study medicine. He was out of school. He always knew he wanted to become a doctor. And he would uh, meet with the circles around Alfred Adler. Now, this was a time when all these new ideas and these uh, fascinating scientists who were pioneers would sit around in Viennese coffee houses and kind of entertain those uh, circles of students around them and exchange ideas. It was a very exciting time, uh, fruitful time, and a lot of exchange between different sciences happening in those coffee houses. Uh, I would, I would love to go back and um, you know, kind of visit that time just to <laughs> see that. Uh, but uh, so he was the Benjamin, which meant he was the the youngest of that group. And he loved those ideas, and he saw himself as an individual psychologist. This was the thing he wanted to, to do as a doctor. I mean, there were no psychotherapists; there were just therapists at the time. He would, you know, have to. It was all part of medicine, and so that was his plan. But then he started to see some uh, things about individual psychology that kind of um, still were very much in going back to those Freudian ideas of everything ultimately still being uh, directed towards the ego. Um, and so uh, we know the essential motivation that uh, Freud had established was this pleasure principle, as I mentioned. And then Adler said, basically, it's, a, it's the power uh, principle. So he basically replaced pleasure by power, right? Uh, and so that my grandfather didn't like. And uh, the other thing, the other aspect was that um, Adler had uh, found an amazing uh, fact, which is that sometimes neuroses really um, have a function which is sort of there to benefit the, the person in that it's a reason, it's a good excuse, if you like, to not engage in life as it, uh, in the best and fullest way because you have this condition which is really just a neurosis i mean just it's bad enough but it's it's something that you can kind of artificially uh keep keep going and it it has some benefits in that it shields you it protects you it takes you out of life and all the risks that comes come with it right so if you say i can't you know like i have a certain phobia then you 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 limit yourself and, and this phobia will limit your capacity to go out and, and, and live and face the real challenges and risks in life. And uh, Adler saw that, that there is this, um, you know, s some benefit that, that people might get from certain neurosis and that uh, that plays a factor in why people develop neurosis or why they don't get rid of it. Okay. And so uh, he, he proclaimed that this is always the case that every neurosis has this function to basically um, take you out of life and you benefit 
from it. And my grandfather thought this was a very extreme position in that uh, he thought that, no, you have to look at each individual case. And there are people who uh, are very much and generally suffering from a neurosis that, that just um, kind of popped up in their life for the stupidest of reasons. I mean, you can create, you know, you can get a phobia by some experience that you had where something didn't work out the way uh, you wanted. And, and I mean, these, there are well-studied mechanisms that can lead to that. And then you have a phobia uh, or, you know, an obsessive compulsion, all these things that, that we could call neurosis. And uh, he would say sometimes it's not the fault. It's not the responsibility of the person who's experiencing this. And you, you can kind of, you can blame them. Uh, the genuine suffering is needs to be addressed. And um, uh, this was something that Adler did not accept. Plus, uh, now this main main idea, um, which was a problem, was that um, my grandfather said the central motivation of a human being is not to gain a lot of power. Because what then what do you do with this power? You know, once you have it, what do you do, right? Power is a means to an end, so you, you want more power, right? Take take power if you equal power with money, right? What do you do once you have a lot of money? Well, you you want more money. If that's the only be all end all, where does it end, right? And so um, he said, no. I think a healthy human being is actually neither interested in pleasure nor power, but in meaning, in putting some meaning into their existence. And that's something that's a qualitatively different um, motivation in that it really uh, um, transcends the ego, right? It's the question of how should my life count and matter in this world? Um, what, not what, what's good for me and what's helpful for me and what's keeping me, I don't know, happy or uh, in a state of, uh, comfort or pleasure but what can i give what can i put into this world how can i act into this world how can i uh, create or um, be in a way that it's meaningful uh, to this world and that is the basic motivation of human being and only if we don't find that if we find no meaningful tasks to engage in if we find no persons to be there for then we kind of resort we fall back to ourselves like a boomerang a boomerang is kind of it's, it's a weapon right it's there to hit the prey and only if it misses the target if it misses the the kangaroo uh it comes back to the person who threw it and that's the same with the human attention and only if we don't find meaning, then we resort to the lower uh, goals, so to speak, which is, okay, well, at least I want to have a lot of pleasure, or at least I want to have a lot of power, or at least I want a lot of prestige or money, uh, because I really don't know what else to do with my life. But this is already an expression of a meaning, search for meaning that has gone wrong. And uh, to bring people back and open their view as to what are you here for? Dealing with these existential questions is the task that he then uh, put into the center of his own uh, school, which he called logotherapy, from the Greek word logos, which means meaning or the word, and therapy, which means healing. And this only happened uh, because Adler kicked him out. 
And he said, no, this is too much deviation from my ideas. Uh, Frankel disagreed. He said, no, I think it's not. But he said, ultimately, who am I to make this decision? If Alfred Adler, the creator of individual psychology, says, I'm no longer part of that group, then I need to accept and respect that. And I need to go out and give it my own name. But had Adler not done that, we would be talking about Viktor Frankl, the individual psychologist who brought in some new ideas. Um, but, you know, sometimes people have an ego that, that they can't uh, um, transcend themselves. Yeah, I mean, I find that so interesting that, that again, this was a case where uh, your grandfather didn't want to leave individual psychology. He was forced out. Um, and he just wanted Adler to, to recognize that there might be different reasons why, or legitimate reasons why patients have uh, a neurosis. Um, and so I find that story so telling that, again, his willingness to engage with, with people and ideas that really spoke to him and that he found true, but then to stand up for clearly ideas that he said, this is this has to be part of what I live out and how I, how I counsel people. And um, you mentioned to me recently about how your grandfather, though, then developed later in life a very good relationship with Alfred Adler's daughter. Can you Already speak more at about that time. That? So, uh, yeah, Alexandra Adler, uh, she also was sad about the fact that, that her dad um, did not tolerate any kind of uh, deviation from his ideas. And so she kind of, she was in his corners, as were a couple of the people surrounding Adler. And they thought it, it, it would be a, a combination uh, and it would help individual psychology to include these ideas. But um, again, Alfred Adler didn't see it. But, and, and he took it very personal. So he, he really, he didn't greet him anymore when they would bump into each other in a, in a coffee house. So, uh, he, was, he was literally kicked out. Um, but um, yeah, Alexandra Adler was uh, more, more tolerant and, and um, she appreciated that. And he appreciated that. I mean, he, he never cr publicly criticized, he didn't publicly criticize uh, Freud or Adler, he thought, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't personal for my grandfather. Um, he was just interested in, in, in the truth and he could not, uh, compromise. He didn't want to compromise with, with his findings and what he thought to be, um, working and true. And so, uh, it was very, um, strictly pragmatic decision for him and uh, but he but he always uh, talked in the highest uh, tones. Do you say that in English? In Houston, <laughs> I don't know. In the best ways about his teachers, because <laughs> he knew that they were his teachers, and uh, you know he was, he was very forgiving when it came to any um, you know character, um, you know the, those those personal things of you know some some people are more tolerant and more open-minded than others and um so it, it but it didn't hinder uh alexandra adler and my grandfather to become good friends it's it's an interesting quality right i mean for every person of course humility but especially those of the greatest minds 
to see who had the humility to to say, okay, I may not be correct about everything or someone else, right? It, it brings to mind another uh, incident you told me about that I didn't know that, that um, Maslow um, came to your grandfather. Could, could you go into that story? I find that so interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, sometimes logotherapy is, is especially in the U.S., is, is kind of put into the same box with humanistic psychology. And uh, in, to, for the most part, rightfully so, uh, humanistic psychology is kind of the counter movement to this very mechanistic, almost dehumanizing, very cynical uh, approach of, okay, the, the human being is just uh, uh, a machine or a being that, that has no other intentions than to serve the ego um this an unmasking which which has a cynical uh dehumanizing aspect to it if you think of it so uh any kind of action any kind of deed that we do in psychoanalysis basically will never be accepted as something that we do just for its own sake there's no selfless act, but everything is just uh, a mask, really, behind which you will uncover some motive that is yet ego-driven, trying to serve your ego. Uh, and this unmasking uh, is is never stopping anywhere, even when where there are things that are authentic that cannot be un unmasked. Uh, there's a great quote by my grandfather who said, psychoanalysis uh, knows nothing essential and therefore it knows essentially nothing, which <laughs> is kind of harsh. Uh, but it's, you know, it's in, in respect to this unmasking business. And uh, so the humanistic psychology movement uh, is, is very different in that it's very respectful of the individual, uh, very respectful also of kind of um, knowing that the answers are not always uh, given and cannot, you know, the, a therapist cannot understand everything. But the role of the therapist is to create a climate in which the patient or client can, can grow and expand and explore and, and find out things. So it's it's very much uh, what's happening in to, for a in a lot of cases in, in logotherapy, that's kind of a, a basis to have that respect for the client to find the answers. Um, but one of the assumptions that Abraham Maslow, who's, who is one of those leading figures of American uh, humanistic psychology, um, is this pyramid that I think most people know where uh, you see kind of the basic needs being the bottom of this pyramid, which is kind of the foundation. So here are the things that we need to have which is, you know, food, shelter, uh, all, all the basic needs covered. And then built on that, we can kind of create the higher uh, values uh, that, that we produce to enrich life, right? The cultural interests and, and creations and uh, reaching out to other beings, relationships, all that, all that comes uh, after after we have food and shelter, right? When that's covered, we can go out and do those things. And my grandfather uh, had witnessed that there is really something wrong with this model because uh, if you even think of the situation in the concentration camp, the basic needs were not covered. And it is especially in those situations where 
they are not covered, and we don't we don't have food and shelter uh, where you have where you have to um, where your needs are not fulfilled. That your attitude, your philosophy, and the meaning aspect becomes central. Uh, you can only survive knowing what your mindset is and why you are putting up with this. So it's really the other way around. Uh, meaning is 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 the foundation, and everything else is is really secondary. And uh, I forgot to mention at the top of the pyramid, uh, Maslow said there's you know self uh, actualization, right? And that's another term which my grandfather always criticized. And that he said self actualization is all okay. It's great, great principle. It's a great idea, but it's nothing you can aim at. It's something that happens. It happens automatically when you are uh, it basically uh, forgetting yourself to some part, right? And when you are focusing on and engaging in meaningful tasks that are out there in the world, the healthy human being is not so much interested in observing uh, his or her own inner states and emotional conditions uh, uh, and, and, and equilibrium, right? Kind of keeping everything in balance. Uh, this is not the human being. Uh, we are out to deal with tensions, out with deal with stresses, and engage in the world around us, and forget about ourselves. Just like the human eye, the human eye. The the less the human eye sees and perceives of itself, the healthier it is. Right? A healthy uh, eye who's uh, that perceives something of itself is already not a completely healthy eye. You have a cataract, right? If you if you see gray, uh, if you see the you see your own lens, right? Uh, so it's the same with the human being. And uh, so to aim at self actualization is is kind of uh, going in the wrong direction. You need to aim at uh, finding and fulfilling meanings, and then you will become yourself. The, the less you care about becoming yourself. It's, it's a little bit of a paradox. And, and to finish the, the, the story, Abraham Maslow and my grandfather were, were friends and they were in contact. And my grandfather told him that, that he criticized this pyramid and said it's, it's, it's backwards. It's the other way around. You need to turn it around. And Maslow said, uh, yes, I think you're right, which is, which is rarely talked about today. But in his later years, he said, you're absolutely right. And, you know, this was nonsense. And uh, he had this greatness, which my grandfather very much, uh, he found, you know, this is really some telling you something about a person and, and their character. If they have this greatness to, uh, Maslow was very much revered and successful with this model and, you know, this pyramid, everybody, most people know it to this day. To not let yourself be seduced by success, but also being interested in finding the truth. And if that means, okay, I got the wrong answer and I see that somebody has a better answer, to admit that and to be able to say, okay, you know, I, w I, I was wrong, uh, that really speaks uh, a lot about who that person is. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it feels like, you know, collectively we're trying to figure out this project of, of what it is to be alive. And you have certain individuals who you know, have the courage and the humility and the heart to say, okay, I've contributed a lot, but, but, but I can, I can recognize when someone else has, 
has maybe rectified something that I got wrong or, or improved on a model. Um, I just find it very encouraging to, to know about these interactions. Um, of course, it happens on every level uh, within science or the humanities, but here we are talking about, about these deep thoughts of, um, on therapy and these particular uh, towering figures. And I, I just, yeah, I love how they've, they were in touch with each other and some of them broke off contact, but others were, were kind enough to sort of say, yeah, you know, uh, you improved on my own model, essentially. I have to revise that. And it really, it, it aids everyone because it's not like Maslow's hierarchy of needs is completely off. It's just that there, there were things that could be, that were, that were changed in a positive way by saying, well, actually, if you think about it this way, we might be closer to. It's a good example of scientists really doing what, what, you would think that they intend to do, which is to find a truth and to see what actually helps and uh, not make the priority. How can I make myself uh, a a name and, uh, you know, get some recognition or whatever. I mean, you see again how this principle of uh, suggesting that every motive is a selfish motive motive, uh, falls short when you see these examples. Yeah. Wow. I, I want to move on to uh, a topic that personally just interests me a lot. Um, And I would like to talk about finding or the way that your grandfather found meaning in beauty and nature. Um, And the examples I'm about to mention to you, I want to be very careful. Uh, They, they took place a lot of them during, uh, during his life uh, and the years in the camps. And I, I don't want to trivialize the horrors that, were present there, but I guess I'm so taken by the really a number of moments that he cares to to write down that he remembers that I find powerful. And so one of the experiences is takes place in Theresienstadt, um, and he's married to his first wife Tilly, who who died in the camps. It's before they were brought to Auschwitz and separated. And he talks about being roughed up. He was taken, he had to go out on the day's work and was roughed up by some, some guy and comes back and, and Tilly, who's a nurse takes care of his, um, wounds. And then they go, they go to a neighboring camp in Theresienstadt and there's this jazz band that's playing by Mir, by Mir that he says was sort of the, the anthem of, for that camp. And it, he reflects on how surreal it was to have such horror and such abuse take place and such beauty in the music within, you know, just a few hours. Um, that's always been a story. Uh, he talks about it in, in Recollections that I just found so stunning because he has the insight to say, look how absurd life is. And yet here we were at the end of the day listening to this this beautiful song. Um, in, in Man's Search for Meaning, he talks about being on the train at one point, being taken from one camp to another camp and seeing the mountains of Salzburg and just how beautiful they were. And he says, you know, if, if people could have seen our faces at that point, even though we had been in camps for so long, 
we were still able to take in the beauty of the mountains. Of course, mountains played a really important role in the life of your grandfather because of, of his love for climbing that he discovered. Um, at another instance, he talks about you know being at his wit's end and and seeing he's working in the camp and 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 seeing a light go on in a farmhouse and and drawing courage from that i guess he was having an inner monologue about whether life ultimately was meaningful and it was deep in thought and was sort of asking this question to himself and he felt like this this light going out in the distance was an answer I, I mention these things because I'm just so interested in this aspect of of his his ability of to pay attention and then to interpret. Of course, the light, all these things could mean any number of things, but he interprets them as signs. But he's also got the eyes to see them and recognize them as as at least hopeful experiences, if not beautiful, though at times he actually speaks about beauty. Um, you know, another instance he talks about seeing a bird um, and and thinking about Tilly, which at this point they had been separated and, and he didn't know if she was alive or not, but sort of being deep in thought about her. And then this bird sort of perched in front of him. And and he takes such joy in, in, in seeing that bird. Do you, is this just my impression? I mean, I, I come to all this as an artist and I know you are as well. So we're both sort of on two, on, on two similar tracks, but we, we, we create and then we, we are deeply engaged in, 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 these, in these existential questions. But did you, are there other moments that you can recall where it was just clear that I, I almost want to call it an artist's eye or this, this ability to perceive and to call out things that were or are beautiful, especially amidst suffering, I guess in this context is what I'm so drawn to. But are there other moments that you remember where you say, yes, you know, he, he was able to perceive beautiful things or took the light in them? Yeah, um, I, I think you're right with your saying that the you know, certain sensibility um, that you will find a lot of artists have. Um, I don't think it's it's limited to artists, but in, he had an artistic streak, if you like. That, that um, uh, definitely, uh, he had a lot of sensibilities that that were very. Uh, he was very perceptive, uh, and I think if you work with people and if you are a good therapist, that's kind of a. a, a a good thing to have it's it's kind of a basic need that you should have otherwise you know, you're uh probably not not going to be able to be in tune with with other people and he had a lot of sensibilities he was a very musical person um you know at some point he composed this tango uh he, he would play the guitar he would play piano he was self-taught um he was very visual. He he had a lot of um, taste, or like his own taste of of you know, uh, designing. Even the room that that he lived in. If you look at his apartment um, and the room where he wor- worked and slept in, he he didn't 
um, need a lot of things, but he was picky and precise about the things that he wanted there. And one of the things that he uh, bought right after the war with the very little money he had yet was a little statuette um, that had probably been once in a, in a church and, and that had been bombed probably. And it was a, this figure of a man being consumed by flames and reaching out up into the um, heavens, so to speak. And for him, he just fell in love with this sculpture and saying, this is a suffering man. This is the homo patiens. Uh, this really embodies this, this state of, of suffering and um, kind of trying to reach out to find a, a higher meaning in the suffering. And he put that in his office and uh, it was the last thing he saw before falling asleep and the first thing in the morning. And it was right there in his, in his visual field. So um, he definitely had this uh, heightened sensibility, a very rich inner life. Um, and and he could see when he was confronted with truth and beauty and uh, those things that are um, he called them experiential values, right? Another way how to find and fulfill meaning in life is not just by what we put into this world, but what we take out of this world. We t what we take from the world into us, and that's uh, the art and the truth and beauty and all those aspects of life where we experience life's beauty and richness and uniqueness uh and um that those were those were things that um were always there and i think if you have this sensibility it becomes especially important in situations where uh you are confronted with a lot of misery and and um, uncertainty and, and stress um like in the camps and he already he also mentions that in man's search for meaning that uh, some of the people who were kind of simple-minded but very strong in their, you know, and kind of seemed stable, those were the first ones to break because you you wouldn't have, you know, the situation was overwhelming, the pressure was overwhelming. But rather those people who had a rich and cultivated inner life that they can kind of emigrate into, they had more chances of um, staying mentally stable in those difficult situations as well. And he was definitely one of them. Yeah. I mean, I know that to talk about beauty amidst uh, any difficult situation, but especially the Holocaust, one runs the risk of trivializing the horrors. But as you were talking, I thought, I think, one reason why they stand out to me, and I'm sure they stand out to many others who have read his books, is that it there is a sense of encouragement to read someone's account and say, this is absolutely horrific, right? I cannot conceive of it. And yet, you, rem you meaning Viktor Frankl, you are able to remember aspects, small moments of 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 beauty uh often in nature but but the fact that that it, it is it is possible to still notice maybe not every day maybe it's once a month but the fact that it is possible to notice these things is an encouragement to say so if i were to ever experience something horrible uh i i can still trust that I might still discover things amidst the, the, the horrors 
that are worth living for. Absolutely. Do you know what I mean? And so that's why I wanted to take the time to mention that because too many accounts, and I'm not, I'm not talking now about the Holocaust, but just too many accounts of people suffering are so void of anything that anything hopeful whatsoever that as people on the outside, you, you hear that and it, it, it almost creates a kind of panic because you say, it's just a dark void. And look, there's plenty of things in life that are and certainly feel at the time like a dark void. I just, again, I just find it so admirable. And it's not a quality I think that you can create in yourself. You either have it or not. But the ability to pay attention and say, or maybe it is. What do you think? <laughs> That's a good question. I, th- I think he would, he would say, no, it is a quality. It is something that you do have some control over. Um, where do you focus your attention? And actually, one of the uh, few techniques that exist in logotherapy and um, that are, are very telling uh, are based on this ability to to um, reflect upon something else than yourself. And usually, this is used uh, when you are uh, in a difficult situation or where where negative negative draws our attention this is just the way that we're built it's evolutionary uh necessity probably that um we, we don't we don't get up in the morning and say i'm glad i don't have a toothache today but the moment we have a toothache in the morning we can think of nothing else right uh, so it grabs our our attention when something's wrong we we put more attention to it and uh and try to fix it but sometimes there are situations where you cannot fix anything and uh when our attention is drawn to these things uh it's it's hard to draw the attention away by saying i'm just trying to not think about that because it's hard to not think uh but to be able uh, when when you put in introduce uh something else to think about then you can kind of draw the attention at least for some time on something else. And uh, how is this useful in, in, in this context? Uh, my grandfather always said, everyone has their own Holocaust. Everyone has their own Auschwitz. Uh, so uh, the experience of a suffering of a situation in which you are not able to change anything about that situation, where you have to kind of accept that there is some suffering ahead of you, um, we easily fall into this uh, loop of on, only dealing and only thinking about the things we cannot change. And sometimes that's not helpful, um, especially when you can't change anything about it. So how do you deal with that? And one way is to practice de-reflection, which is I'm going to consciously put attention to the positive things, say, that are happening as well, right? Uh, and make an effort to also give those aspects the attention that they deserve, even if they're not in the foreground and and screaming and yelling for our attention as much as the negative things do. Uh, But by dealing, by sometimes just even a little bit, even a few times a day, uh, kind of making yourself aware of the things that are going well or the experiences that are beautiful or that that are good, uh, it, it also helps and it creates a mindset that becomes more open and more 
but um, engaged in, in the reality where, because most of the times our lives are neither totally hopeless and bleak or just wonderful and splendid and without any problems. It's usually a mix. And uh, to say the glass is half full is, is one philosophy to say it's half empty is the other. But in, in logotherapy, we would say it's both. It's half full and half empty. What are you going to do about it? Right? Look at both sides of the coins. And uh, that is very helpful. Uh, Elizabeth Lucas, one of the, or maybe the best, uh, most prominent student of my grandfather's, who's really kind of brought logotherapy into a teachable uh, form and, and created a lot of uh, new ideas that, that very much um, successfully work within uh, logotherapy. Uh, she uh, started uh, these de-reflection groups that she would sometimes do where she would have several patients together and have them uh, sit together and ha she would give them one one rule, which was you can talk about anything as long as it's positive. And uh, she explains that how at first everyone's silent. And you realize they're trying to think and they're, you know, almost ready to say something, but then they realize, oh, that, you know, I'm complaining again. Uh, my focus is on the negative again. And then slowly she says, you know, with a little practice, and there comes in the element of where you do have that control, where we all can practice a little bit. Uh, she would say that gets better. And you say, well, you know, even if it's just, okay, you know, I had a good breakfast today or, you know, the mail came on time or something, you know, usually, usually there's something. And when you work from there, you get a more balanced, um, view of the world of your situation. And why is this meaningful? Well, because if you're only focusing on the negative, a lot of the good things, you might not even perceive them. And you might not even notice that there are some uh, possibilities of uh, doing something different, of uh, finding a solution, of enjoying life a little bit amidst uh, a difficult time, right? Uh, that this this is possible, and usually life provides both the the good and the bad. That's so helpful to hear your thoughts and, and the context uh, of how, you know, to hear my own, my own thoughts sort of reflect on why this stood out to me and how your grandfather would have spoken about why these moments are useful in our life. Um, I, I want to move on to this, this other uh, topic that I've always been interested in. And I've, I've labeled this for myself, finding meaning and reconciliation uh, or at least moments where I perceive your grandfather to have been part of, uh, of, of people's lives in ways that were reconciliatory. Um, the first one is actually reconciling yourself to a place. Your grandfather came back to Vienna almost immediately. I, I, I remember reading somewhere he was on one of the first trains. Well, it, yeah, it was the, at first he was, he was liberated. Um, by Texan troops from Turkheim, which was the last camp he was in. Um, um, he then was immediately put in charge of a hospital, an improvised hospital. It was a military hospital that Americans set up in an old hotel, Hotel Sonnenhof. And uh, there he was in charge. He was put in charge as a doctor. 
and very much actually beloved by both staff and, and patients. And he was helping get, you know, the people who were uh, in the camps uh, who, with him to uh, uh, help them recover. And um, he was not, actually not allowed to leave those grounds because they need, needed doctors. The Americans needed doctors. And, and I mean, he was happy to help, but he also didn't know whether his wife or mother were still alive. And he wanted to get away as quickly as possible to seek them and to find out if they're still alive. And he even wrote a letter uh, at some point saying, I just need to get to Vienna and to see if anybody of my family survived. And if they did, I will come back. Um, if if you want me to, um, which then of course never happened because he found out that that nobody was waiting for him. Right, right. So he he I mean he comes back for that reason and he he finds out that they both died, and he has one of his I think very very low points in life where where he himself almost despairs, um, and that he talks about. It, in, in numerous contexts, yeah. but he, he stays in Vienna and many people never understood that. Um, especially we, we forget that we now know how history played out, but in 1945, after the war was officially over, it wasn't clear exactly. I mean, yes, the allies had were present, but it wasn't clear what would happen next? And it, it right. wasn't necessarily yeah. a safe place to be. No, nobody knew right? which direction it was going to turn. Go. So he comes back and he says, I mean, in one instance, you know, why would I turn my back on Vienna? Because the argument was, well, how could you possibly go back into the lion's den, right? Mm-hmm. Where people have betrayed you, where you're, yeah. you know. And where, and where there was still a lot of anti-Semitism. Right. When there's... No, no doubts about that. Right. And his answer was, well, why would I not go back to Vienna since, and he, he gave a number of examples of people, of Austrians, uh, e- either folks that he knew or folks that he had heard of that had been courageous and had stood up against the regime and had helped. And he said, uh, in some way, an early articulation of what, what had became sort of a strong argument against collective guilt Later on, he said, there were good people that, that I can point to. Why would I turn my back on them? Am I, am I sort of paraphrasing this correctly? No, no this is, yeah, absolutely. This is, um, this is how I felt. It was um, very much uh, very clear in his view on human nature. Again, this was what he was doing all the time, right? describing human existence, thinking about what what does it mean to be a human individual? What are the aspects uh, that we all have in common and that make us unique on, on the other hand? So uh, he said it's, it's character, it's decisions, it's the choices that we make. Um, we have free will. He was perhaps one of the first to accept uh, the notion that we do have free will, even though for decades, uh, psychologists and behaviorists, psychology in particular, tried to rule that out and kind of find, uh, you know, make enough rat experience to kind of explain away uh, Hubert Rohracher, who was, you know, the head of the psychology department for generations in Austria, was still very much a behaviorist who thought, if we can understand every uh, thing that goes on in a human brain, 
then we can predict the outcome. We can predict the behavior of that person, of that individual. Uh, and uh, of course, we know that never happened. The this idea of the human being as a black box, kind of you put something bad in and something bad will come out, uh, which is so so persistent, even you know, in just. Uh, you know, I say kitchen psychology, right? Or, or you you hear somebody preach this. Oh well, she never received any love, so she couldn't give any love, right? This is this model, this rat model, essentially of whatever you put in there is is going to determine the outcome. Uh, but my grandfather saw very clearly that as human beings, it, we are a lot more complex, and we do have uh, choices in our lives. We do have the free choice. Uh, not independent of, uh, I mean, we, we are not free from all these conditioning factors. We are humans. Of course, we, we are in some aspects uh, determined by our genetic makeup, right? We are uh, very much uh, influenced by inner processes, behavior patterns, learned behaviors, defense mechanisms, all of these things that are and have been well well studied. No doubt that these play a role, but you cannot take away the element of freedom where we do have the choice to take a stand towards those conditions. We are free to take a stand towards those conditions. We can make choices. And even if you have uh, uh, an environment that that, that would have uh, kind of uh, formed you to become a master criminal or murderer, right? You still have that choice, and there are still people who say, "No, I'm going to go a different direction." Uh, I grew up in a in a you know my my parents never loved me, therefore I will hate everybody else, or therefore I I I've experienced what it's like to not receive any love, therefore I'm going to give a whole lot of love to all the people that I know. Right? This is the decision. This is this is what we are free to do we're not free from conditions but we are free to take a stand and to freely um, uh, choose who we want to be in this world and if we want to do good or if we want to do bad if we want to go with uh, every time with the direction in which the majority is marching into which uh, to my personal conviction is usually the wrong direction uh, and or am i going to listen to my conscience and really try to find out what's right and what's wrong and then i still have that decision to make am i going to do what my conscience is suggesting or not our conscience is not is not is not forcing us to do anything it's like a compass it, it leads you in the direction of what's true and what's right but uh it's still my personal choice to say am i going to follow that or am i going to uh compromise and a lot of people compromise every day uh, think of uh, you know you, you don't even have to go back into into the Nazi era to uh, be clear of that right uh, and then there are those factors um, if you think uh, you know if you were standing up against Hitler uh, great I mean good for you uh, and I think a lot of people actually d did disagree with Hitler but to say I'm going to sacrifice my life and i'm going to sacrifice the lives of the people who i'm responsible for then it becomes a little bit more difficult and then to demand and say okay everybody should yeah absolutely everybody should have done uh joined the resistance and and said we're we're not going to do what's asked of us absolutely true but 
uh, you cannot demand it because those people who did that, they can really be seen as heroes because they said, we know what's right and we're going to follow our conscience, even if that means uh, we're going to be killed ourselves. But there are things that are more important than our lives. Absolute heroes. And as my grandfather said, heroism is wonderful and you can uh, demand it only of one person and that is yourself. So unless you can prove that you would have joined the resistance, uh, don't say, uh, don't judge those people who prefer to somehow arrange with their conscience and kind of, you know, swim with the masses and not act up. Uh, It's easily said that they should have done it, and you're right that they should have done it, but to judge uh, people is something that uh, nobody has the right to unless you have proven that you would have done different than than they did. And this is something, uh, you know, I think that's very current as well. That That's a universal truth. And most people uh, might even feel in their conscience. And he said everybody has a conscience. Everybody has a conscience. He would say Hitler had a conscience, right? He decided not to listen to it. But he, he, he had it. And most people you see uh, who are kind of living in a compromise, in a state of, I know what's right, I'm not doing it anyway because uh, I want some benefits or I want you know a, an easy life, right? I don't want conflict. All those those many, many reasons of why we're all, and you know I'm, I'm guilty of that, <laughs> I don't know about you, but uh, I think it would be unhuman to assume uh, you know, that, that we're always just completely following our conscience. But that's not even important. The point is to focus on that and to uh, see that this is really uh, where human beings are called to become the best version of themselves and to cultivate and to make a good choice of what am I going to cultivate? Am I going to cultivate, uh, you know, this, this, this compromising and uh, these lower aims, uh, so to speak, that, that really are essentially not meaningful but guarantee some safety? Or am I going to go out and, and, and speak the truth, even if that's not going to make me popular? Right. And, I mean, this is what's so unbelievable about this stance is that you know how many enemies, enemies might be too strong a word, people could not understand your grandfather's ability to speak in nuanced ways about the horrors that not only he, but so many others had experienced, right? To the point where people were, 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 were sort of accusing him of not really caring about the victim's plight. Right. And in, in, in terms of, let's say, the questions of collective guilt, um, I remember your grandfather, he stated in one of his books that he was able to never forget any good deed that anyone had done to him, but that, that any bad deed done to him, he certainly cultivated or tried to cultivate a mindset of letting go of that. And I, I know that, I mean, it's easier said than done, but. In, in the way he spoke about these really grave and important matters, I'm just amazed that he managed to, to do that. Because I think, uh, again, I feel like for so many people that were rightfully so, so hurt, so angry, 
so despairing because of what had happened to them. To hear anyone claim a semblance of sort of understanding or, I mean, again, I'm not saying, obviously, your grandfather didn't say behavior doesn't matter. On the contrary, on the contrary. If you understand the context, then it's really easy to understand. He saw the individual. If you if you attribute free will to the human being, to the individual, then uh, this means we are responsible for our choices and for our actions, ultimately. right? While there are a lot of influences, we cannot explain away everything. We are responsible. And therefore... Uh, we have the capacity of becoming guilty and we have the capacity of uh, doing something uh, that's a human achievement. That's something, something positive. If you would explain everything away just by uh, conditioning processes and influences and nature versus nurture, you would uh, also give an alibi. I mean, you could, you could say, okay, Hitler couldn't do any, you know, his dad beat him. So of course he had to do what he did. Right. You would take away the responsibility of, of, of a mass murderer, right? So uh, either you accept that we do have choices, we do have a free will, or, or we don't. And if you do, then the question of responsibility comes in. And uh, then with that, automatically, the question of guilt is tied to that. It's tied to your personal decision. And it's not the decisions of somebody else. It's not the decisions of your parents or your grandparents, right? So it, it would be... Really, if you think of it, it would be logical, it would be absurd for me to say, oh, I'm proud of my grandfather's actions, right? Because there's nothing that I had to do with him. I didn't make any choices for him. I wasn't around. Yet yet we kind of say those things, right? But uh, if you think consequently to the end, guilt is something very, pos- very, very individual. So um, the responsibility that you have for your actions and for those things you should have done and didn't do is is with you. And most people know that. and they can distinguish between uh, something that they're being told and their own uh, amount of guilt that they uh, decided to put on their shoulders by their actions. And uh, as soon as you start to attribute uh, guilt in a non-personal way, in a collective way, then you're doing the same thing that the Nazis did. It's, that's the real crime to say a whole group of people just because they belong to the same group, right? In that case, a religious group or a nationality uh, is, is the insanity that started the whole problem in the first place. And he wasn't alone with that opinion. It was actually those people who had been with him in the camp that always said the same thing. Like, let's not make that mistake again of collectively blaming a whole group of people for the actions of, uh, you know, the worst uh, people in that group that that they chose to do. Uh, It's not that simple. And if you do that, you will always hurt the individual and you will just put more injustice into this world. You have to look at every case individually. And and in those cases where you are dealing with guilt, uh, it's... It's a universal topic. A person who has become guilty still than every human being. I mean, we're all guilty, right, of something. You cannot live without it sooner or later doing something that wasn't right or that wasn't good. It could have been better, and then you're guilty. So what do you do then? And uh, to give a human being the chance to remorse and to say, I did something wrong, I see that now, 
and I am uh, remorseful about that and uh, I'm changing as a human being I, I want to be a different human being now uh, I mean society wouldn't work if we didn't give people that chance to do that right even the murderer uh, has the chance to review their own deeds uh, and it was a philosopher who actually once said um, every criminal has the right to be punished now what do you mean by that again free will if you would explain away free will and say every we're just the victims and the machines that are kind of operating on a program well then we're not responsible and then we by default cannot be guilty but that's the real dehumanization if you say okay you you can do any different and my grandfather went uh, and spoke at san quentin prison uh, and a lot of people at first didn't attend because they thought, here's another shrink, <laughs> here's another psycho psychologist. And we know what they're saying. They're saying, oh, you know, you couldn't do any different responsibilities with your uh, parents only or with your environments only. Now, again, not that these are not factors. Absolutely not. There, there are things that constantly need to be changed in society and improved. There's no question about that. But ultimately, this is, is not the whole story. And even people growing up in, under bad circumstances uh, oftentimes turn out to be uh, fine people and people who not automatically become criminals. Uh, and if you rule out this possibility, uh, then you're, you're treating people in a very inhumane way. We are responsible, but guilt is something, is something personal and you have to look at each and every individual case uh, and so this was part of his uh, capacity to view a little, to have a clear view of, of what makes us human. Right. So there's, there's hope. There's hope for everyone, at least in terms of their ability to choose differently. Yes. Yeah. So the human being is always good for a surprise, right? Right. <laughs> oh, I love that. I think that's a, that's a good... That's a good one to end on. The human being is always good for a surprise. Oh, Alex, this has been so great. I, there are so many more questions I have, but we will have to address them uh, some other day. Thank, thank you so much for your, for your insights and time uh, to, to talk about these. Yeah, thank you. Great questions. These themes that you know, I've found so fascinating and interesting, and um, I look forward to our next conversation. So do I. Okay. Thank you. Take care. You too. Thanks so much for listening to the Victor Frankl Project. If you want to know more about what we're up to, you can find us on Facebook or Instagram or on the web at www.victorfrankelproject.com. My name is Chris Domig. And I hope you'll join us again soon.